Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. My name is Brandi Miller and I am your host, and today I'm going to give a little bit of a prelude to my conversation with Elizabeth Morath about anti-Semitism. This is a huge conversation rooted in history and violence, genocide, oppression, erasure, and all sorts of other things that are pretty triggering to talk about. So know that we're going to be talking about those things in this conversation. I also know that Christians have a hard time entering these conversations because our texts in and of themselves are ripe with confusing messages about the Jewish people, and that is not neutral. It is additionally hard because to talk about anti-Semitism is to jump into a bunch of socio-political landmines that we can't cover all of today. To that effect, we don't really talk much about Israel as a nation or the Israel-Palestine conflict. Those are super important conversations, but they fall outside of the purview of what I feel able or competent or capable of talking about in this time. And so hopefully we'll come back to those kinds of conversations with nuance like we do everything else later. And finally, It's pretty hard to talk about genocide and horrific historic violence without using expletives, so there are plenty throughout this episode. So please, with that, enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on, especially for this topic. I realize it's not super neutral at all, so thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you for having me, Brandy. I'm a mix of emotions. Absolutely fair. Well, Elizabeth, as we enter in, I know that folks may not know who you are. And so if you could, as we do every single week, please describe for folks, what does it mean to be you? Yes. Okay. So what it means to be me is I am currently a copywriter and digital marketer based in Atlanta. Um, I live walking distance from my in-laws and my sister-in-law and her two kids. And that's why we're here. Um, For the purposes of this podcast, what's most important to know about me is that I am the product of an interfaith marriage between a Puerto Rican migrant and an Ashkenazi Jew. So I grew up never attending church, really. Um, I grew up in Judaism, but I knew about Jesus. And then when I was in college, I entered a lot of Christian spaces And that is why we're here today. (laughs) (laughs) So being me is a lot of fun, but you know, it's it's a a complicated dish. Yeah. Can you give a couple of like uh, touch points for us on what that means for you? Um, Well, I'll just give a couple of examples. I just... One, I'll give one from my end. I think I didn't realize when I went to college how ignorant I was of Christianity. But I remember distinctly my freshman year of college, Easter weekend, the dorms empty. And I look to my freshman roommate and I say, is Easter like a big deal? (laughs) And she kind of looks at me quizzically and says, well, I mean, without it, there's no Christianity. And I was like, ah, yes. So there's ignorance to go around here. Uh, But on the flip side, I had someone, I was inviting some people to come to a Yom Kippur service, and I had someone ask me, well, do we worship a Christian person from the same campus fellowship I was in? Asked me, well, do you worship the same God as me? Like, is it idolatry for me to come? Uh, So that's one reaction. And then another one is I actually had someone run up to me and say, I've always wanted to meet one of you. Oh. So these are like, these are the kind of experiences I was having. 
just on an interpersonal level. And then interacting with Christian theology was also just very different. So that's a little uh, primer. It was just a culture shock, right? It, it was a culture shock I didn't expect. So there you yes. have it, folks. Yes, that absolutely makes sense and is abhorrent in so many ways. And I think it speaks to some of what we'll get to today, which is that as we consider anti-Semitism, that a lot of it comes from what Christians would consider well-intentioned questions, thoughts, or ideas, or foundations in quote-unquote biblical truth that have dangerous, violent, and as we'll talk about, genocidal implications. But before we get there, I would love to hear a little bit about what your sense of vocation is, a little bit more about who you are as we enter in, because I think that's helpful, especially in a conversation like this, to have a little bit of a grasp of who you are and what's important to you. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. So vocation, I've kind of let go a little bit. Um, I came to copywriting and digital marketing via the community development world. And so that story, you know, some of your listeners will already be like, oh my gosh, I know that story and I don't even have to say it. So that's a story kind of bound up in white supremacy as well. And so with my exit came sort of a letting go of vocation for me. And so I'm sort of here. Um, I do think of myself as a storyteller. I think of myself as a nerd. And I mean that in, I love learning and I love learning about people. And even in my current role, I think part of my role is to be bilingual in the sense of to listen not only for what people are saying, but for what they mean. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's a little bit. I have a two-year-old daughter. Her name is Shifra. So I think uh, naming Love a Jewish it. child a super Jewish name, yeah. you know, makes it a little bit more pressing. And so maybe I'll just be honest with people. I'm not an activist. The reason I started talking about this was um, the insurrection on January 6th. And the reason I started talking about it is, is not, and we maybe don't want to get into all of this now because I think we need more handholds, but the reason I started talking was actually not because of the rights anti-Semitism, but actually the, the things that I heard my friends saying, like people who cared about social justice, people who were decolonizing their theology. I just heard these really common things that Christians say that are deeply attached to violence against Jewish people. Mm. And so I know people didn't. Yeah. So I'll leave it there. So that's why I'm talking. I'm not an activist. Yeah. I am just, I just ignited that. Oh my, it's time to do something. <laughs> yes. And that absolutely makes sense. And it's so necessary because I know myself, I am a person who is on the journey of unlearning a lot of the violent rhetoric that you're talking about. And I'm a person who has been guilty very recently of doing such of it or of wielding such tropes in my own teaching, preaching, engagement with scripture. And so for me, as a Christian person, unlearning, unlearning anti-Semitism is a part of my broader liberation movement in myself and hopefully for other people as well. And so I just want to own that I'm pretty new to this conversation and am a learner alongside others and alongside you and am deferring a lot in how I understand a lot of this because I know that Christianity has given me a lens that inherently erases Judaism, Jewish people, and gives no holds for this conversation. And so 
as we start that conversation, as you were saying, in terms of holds, let's define a couple of things, because I think that some of us think that we know more than we do. But if you were to ask someone like, what is a Jew? I don't think we actually can name that very well. <laughs> and so I would love for you to describe in whatever order you want to. What is what is a Jew? Like, how do you describe the Jewish people? And what is anti-Semitism in light of that? So however you think makes most sense to do that, would love those definitions for our conversation today. That is great. And in light of reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, I'm just going to be straight up. It's a complicated answer. And we're just going to hold that beauty. Cause I, so anyway, so let me start with Jews. What is a Jew? Um, sorry, I think I just became my grandfather for a second. <laughs> um, okay, so Jews, I think we need to start with the idea of an ethno-religious group. Although I'm going to just, maybe I should just say, one of the issues that makes anti-Semitism so slippery is that Jewish people don't fit cleanly in most categories. Mm -hmm. So a Jewish person, well, let me just say, Jewish people are an ethno-religious group, which means they're people who are tied via a common history, a common religion, mm -hmm. a common like ethnicity, and a common like story about themselves. Um, and we are an ethno-religious group, pardon me, I speak only for myself, I slip into saying we and ours because that's how my brain works. So when I say we and ours, that's still Elizabeth talking. Mm -hmm. So that's a side note. Also, now you have a glimpse of why Paul is really confusing. So like, uh, anyway, so uh, Jewish people originated in the Levant, which is Southwest Asia, North Africa region, uh, somewhere 4,000 years ago. So I think this is something that people do not always know, but Jewish people, or I, as a Jewish person, do in fact identify my ancestors as the ancient Israelites. So when you encounter the Hebrew scriptures, I am thinking those are my ancestors. I am feeling connected to those people, to those stories as my ancestors. The Hebrew Bible is a, is a text about Jewish history. Um, so I think that right off the bat can be a common misconception. But Jews, a defining feature, I think, of Jewishness is it so often existed in diaspora for thousands of years. So let me just run really quick. There's some core ethnic subgroups. There's a ton. I'm not going to cover them all. But just to give you a broad sense, um, there are ethnic subgroups of Jews and they have accompanying differences in their religious practice mm -hmm. of Judaism, which yeah. that term is relatively new. <laughs> so, yes. so like, so like a person who's ethnically Jewish may or may not practice Judaism. Yes. If that makes sense. So yes, it's and that gets complicated even when you start to talk about like national identity. So someone could be Israeli and Jewish, but not practice Judaism or be so you can like take the Venn diagram a lot of different intersections. Right. right. And so within that, you know, you get some racial differences as well. People yes. who we who we would racialize differently in the United States. Yes. So um, one of the one of the ethnic subgroups is an Ashkenazim. That, those are the Jews who uh, settled in Germany, France area. Their ancestral language on top of on top of Hebrew is Yiddish. That's me. 
they're the majority of Jewish people in the United States. And I will name that as an Ashkenazi Jew, I am still working on my Ashkenormativity. So if you have any Sephardim, Mizrahim, folks from Beit Israel, anything, and you hear me say something dumb, please come at me. We're all on the journey. <laughs> uh, so some of the other groups I mentioned, Sephardis, it can encompass a, wi- a wide range of people, typically mm-hmm. understood as uh, Jewish people who are in like Spain, Portugal, Northern Africa, Morocco-ish area. Mm-hmm. Beit Israel is the community in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, Mizrahim are from like the eastern portion of North Africa, uh, Egypt, for example. Literally, Mitzrayim is Egypt in Hebrew. <laughs> Uh, I think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Passover is coming up and we sing about Miss Raim a lot. So I have a song called Dianu stuck in my head right now. Yes. Uh, Kaifeng Jews are an, a Jewish community from China. Like there are a ton of ethnic subdivisions. So I think what it means to be Jewish is to claim this story of our people and to be descended from these people and to maybe practice Judaism. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. So there you go. So I'll just stick with that. That's Jews. Yeah. I'm not even going to touch Judaism because Judaism has its own like ding, 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 intricacies and subdivisions. Yes. And we'll, if we need to be there, we can foray in and out of conversations and make sense of them as we go, knowing that this is complex and that the blurring of the lines is a part of the dialogue in some ways. Yes. And maybe the last thing I'll mention, sorry, about who are Jewish people, is we are like a dinky minority. Dinky. Mm -hmm. We are 0.2% of the world population and just 2% of the U.S. population. And I think sometimes, I just think it's helpful to hold that. Like, we're talking about a tiny group of people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, then let's talk a little bit about anti-Semitism, because I think that in the scope of our conversation, anti-Semitism becomes this foundational ideology that allows and propels white supremacy in a lot of different ways. And as you talk about 0.2% of a population or 2% of the US population, there are ways in which the current rhetoric around specifically QAnon or the far right, Christian nationalist, white supremacist movements magnify the Jewish people into this ethereal, abstracted threat. And that is the kind of the space where I enter into conversations about anti-Semitism. And so I'd love for you to describe what anti-Semitism is, but just know that that's, as for a lot of people, I think that might be our context, is hearing this kind of over-magnifying or completely erasing or invisibilizing. So I think that's a lot of our starting point. I mean, I think you're spot on. I mean, like the easiest definition of anti-Semitism is um, hostility or prejudice towards Jewish people. And I know it's easy for us to be like, well, I'm not like that. But we all know that that comes in shades, right? And erasure is one shade of hostility um, or prejudice. So that's how that's how I would define it. But I think, and again, I think I'm about to say something that I consider to be very Jewish, that term is actually meaningless outside of story. <laughs> mm. So it's it's actually like very difficult for me to describe what anti-Semitism is without story. Um, so, but I'll give a couple of quick stats. Um, so 
2019, Jewish people accounted for 60% of hate-based crimes. Like, 60% of hate crimes that were religiously motivated were towards Jews. And yes, the FBI gets a side eye for classifying them as religiously motivated. (laughs) But we're talking, like, close to a thousand hate crimes against, again, 2% of the population. So I think... um, I think part of part of anti-Semitism is a wiping away of Jewish pain and Jewish danger. I think Jewish people are often accused of crying anti-Semitism. I think the other thing I want to name, if I can kind of gently call people in, is I think one of the things about anti-Semitism is it is it is an equal opportunity employer. Mm. Like as I referenced in the beginning. I, I see my close friends saying things. Am I a, am I scared of them in the way I'm scared of the Proud Boys? No, I am not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I still hear them. Um, so so what is so anti-Semitism can look like a lot of things, right? Like mm-hmm. it can look like saying, "Oh, stop crying anti-Semitism." It can look like very casual Holocaust comparisons. Mm-hmm. It can look like you know, literally someone walking into a synagogue and shooting people, mm-hmm. you know, which happened, which has happened, happened multiple times over the past few years, right? Like, yes. so it's clear as we talk about anti-Semitism that there are a lot of categories that that can fit into. And it makes it kind of a convoluted conversation. So I'd love to go back at some point and talk about January 6th, because I think the anti-Semitism like you talked about, and as I'm learning existed on, for lack of better terms, both sides or across the fluidity of what it means to be human and try to make sense of world events. But I'm sure that exists in your own life or experiences or engagement. And so however you want to ground us in some of what this looks like, I would appreciate just a few more, few more holds. Thanks. No, thanks for that, Brandy. Maybe an easy way, um, maybe an easy way to kind of sidle into this conversation is to just say that is, I will just own a little bit. So I live in Atlanta. I live in a black suburb in Atlanta, like a place that was built by people who were not allowed to live anywhere else. Like I live on the land of the Muscogee Creek nation. My folks did not arrive here. I mean, sorry, neither my Puerto Rican family nor my Jewish family came before 1900. And yet I inherit the legacy of that violence. And it's my responsibility to figure out how to deed my land back and give reparations. Because even though I did not directly participate, I inherit the legacy of violence here. So I feel like most folks who are listening to your podcast probably know that. And I guess my suggestion is that if you follow Jesus, you inherit a legacy of violence against the Jewish people. So I would just give you... And it's so hard, right? Because over history, no one says, I'm acting in my anti-Semitism hat now. Like, I just hate you because you're a Jew. Okay, now I hate you because of your theology. Like, you know, it's not that clean. So it's all meshed. So I wanted to just talk about, like, the most important thing about who I am for this podcast is that I am the great-granddaughter of Claire Morath. I have four great-grandmothers, but Clara looms large. She is um, the woman who I've always been told that I look like, the woman who I told stories about 
the woman who's Afghan is in my bedroom, <laughs> the woman whose poetry I have. So Clara, my great-grandmother, grew up in Slutsk, which is close to what you'd think of as modern-day Minsk. After the czars took the Pale of Settlement, this section of Europe, pogroms started to get really, really bad. Really bad. Um, do you think folks know what a pogrom is? I don't. Okay. Well, listed, if you look up a pogrom, an example of a pogrom in the United States is the Tulsa Massacre. That's, that's a pogrom. It is state-sanctioned, state-incited violence um, where people come in, murder, burn. It's the destruction of a community. Mm -hmm. um, that started happening a lot, <laughs> a lot in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, again, deeply tied to Christianity. So one of the most common ones we'll probably talk about is deicide is accusing the Jews of killing Jesus. This shows up in a lot of forms. So one example of a pogrom is literally in Kishinev on Good Friday, people left mass and then they attacked the Jews <laughs> and uh, revenge killing were killing Jesus. At any rate, Clara's family decides it is time to go. So they hop on a boat, like 2 million other Jews around this time. They hop on a boat right before World War I. And they come to the United States. And my family says, just to bring it home, and if you know where I'm going, I apologize. In my family, we say the anti-Semitism of the Tsar saved us from the anti-Semitism of the Nazis. <laughs> because 17 years later, the Nazis come to Slutsk. And they do what's called liquidate the ghetto. Mm -hmm. And they slaughter everyone, right? Yes. Um, and so Clara was a poet, and her poems were all in Yiddish. She never learned English. And my grandfather had them translated when I was in high school. And so I have the poem. It's called Golden Cradle of My Youth, which is the ode she writes to Slutsk after it has been destroyed by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this was done by Christians. Mm -hmm. all, of this is, all of this is Christians, right? Like, yes. um, so I think... How do, I think I wanted to name that because I think Jewish trauma is real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At least to me, it lives on to it lives on to me. And um, wasn't that long ago? It, it's not it's mm -hmm. not old. It's not stale. Um, and I think it's important. You know, it's how do I say some of the things we're going to talk about. It's easy to think like oh, that's bad theology, or oh, that's kind of in the text. But I think it might help. I share that story so you know that, like, when someone says the Pharisees conspired with Rome to kill Jesus, I hear Kishinev, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, when they say the law brings death, like, I hear Martin Luther in On the Jews and Their Lies. Like, I hear cumnimus absurdum, which is when the Pope institutes the ghetto in Rome and Rome becomes a sundown town. Like, mm -hmm. I think, so I think that's just why I want to share that. I think it's not, it's, it's just because, I think it's just to undo some of that erasure, right? 
Yes. Jewish people exist. Yes. Jewish people are alive. We know rhetoric has consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'll only speak for myself, but when I hear some things that Christians say very casually, regardless of if I think they're disrespectful to my Jewish identity, they are often attached to a deep existential terror inside me. Yes. If that, if that makes yes. sense. Yes. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I think that that is to say a lot of things. One is that we know historically that anti-Semitism predates Christianity, but that Christianity functions as a particularly powerful and in- incessant weapon. Yes. And so for the sake of Christianizing the world, really. And so Christianizing and thus the ideology or the racial category, the construction of whiteness does not exist first without anti-Semitism. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that while anti-Semitism is a historic evil, it's really gotten its wheels or it's like most primed, evolved form in Christianity. And it finds its particular, its particularities in how particularly right now, white evangelical Christians think about Jesus, about the Hebrew scriptures, about who they are in the text. And so I would love for us to talk a little bit about whiteness and white supremacy, and then we'll get, I think we're going to circle back to a lot of the tropes because they fall right in the pocket for that kind of thing. Is that okay? Okay. So actually, I'm going to do something super Jewish to you. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question instead of answering your question. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm going to, when you think about white supremacy, when does it start? Like where where what's your or what's your internal origin story of white supremacy? The way as a person in the US who functions in the particularities of white USness <laughs> I don't even yeah, know how to yeah. say I would show. say when yeah, I would say when <laughs> what my friend Sean would call the pilgrims showed up on the shores of Turtle Island. That they are holding yes. a, an ideology of this anti-Semitic, this anti-Semitic ideology of God has blessed us as people who are not Jewish with the land and with the blessing of Abraham, even though they wouldn't say that specifically necessarily, to come and take this land. And so anti-Semitism or the replacement of Jewish people functions as the starting point. Like for me, anti-Semitism is the starting line for whiteness. And so I would say whiteness, for me at least, exists right when they touch the shores of Turtle Island, or even when the papables are being written that allow them to do such a thing. Yes. Okay, cool. There's no right or wrong answer. I Obviously, there's no right or wrong answer. I think we agree on when it was born. And I think of anti-Semitism as this, like, relative. If Maybe it's the mother, maybe it's the cousin, maybe it's the weird uncle. I can't really decide mm-hmm. its relationship with white supremacy. But... Um, Yeah. Okay. You said so many good things. Where do I go? Okay. Maybe the easiest place is to start with anti-Semitism in Christianity, right? Maybe that'll help us. Because, like you say, anti-Semitism predates Christianity. That is true. I often, just to be gentle with everybody, 
anti-Semitism is not special. It's just really old. <laughs> like, I think that's the only thing it has going for it. <laughs> like, and I like to say that, like, white supremacy is not innovative. I don't know why it makes me mad, but sometimes I'm like, why are you just doing the same thing? You've gotten away with doing the same freaking thing yep. for so long. Come up with something new. Anyway, I don't know why that bothers me. It's like a very odd <laughs> frustration. <laughs> okay, but okay, so here's the issue, right? Da-na-na, come with me to Paul's time. So, okay, so Paul is like, Paul is like, has decided he's going to go spread this message of Jesus to the Gentiles, right? And the Gentiles, more Gentiles come than Jewish people. And this is a problem for a lot of reasons. This is a problem for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the reasons is I think Gentiles are kind of like, well, we outnumber you now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And you, I think a lot of it happens there. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but I just suspect, like, if if Paul, as he's writing Romans, is lamenting the fact that more Jewish people are not joining, like, this movement that he is trying to build, we know it started early. That that outnumbering started very early. Mm -hmm. And so I think Gentiles are kind of sitting here going like, well, so all this is ours now, right? Um, And so there's like a a theological attempt to, well, there's an argument. People are like, well, maybe that's a different God. Like maybe the Hebrew scriptures are about a different God. And then people say no. And they're like, okay, but if it isn't a different God, why are there still Jews? Like, why are Mm -hmm. there still Jews? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And, and whereas I think you and I, as people who can decolonize, who have been working on this, we can say God can walk and chew gum at the same time. Say like, you know, God didn't create the earth because the ocean was incomplete. Like God can create things that work well together. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're just gonna go ahead and say the Goyim struggled with that. I think. <laughs> uh, so I think early on you get this push to kind of rest, like rest the promises, rest ownership from the of the text, like, like say these are all ours now. This is our God. Um, and that just continues to grow, right? Like, yes. and you know, Christians at the time are still being persecuted as a sect of Judaism because Rome doesn't care. Like yes. Rome doesn't give a shit. Like Rome's yes. like, what are those, what are those Jews doing? Meh. Just yes. conquer them some more. Yes. And Rome has been oppressing Jews far before the story of Jesus starts. And so when Christians enter into that story and act as though the Roman oppression against Christian people is unique, that in and of itself erases Jewish peoples. So when Christians say things or quote Paul saying things like there is no Jew or Greek, we don't recognize that in quoting that we are living out a genocidal legacy in which Jewish people don't get to fit or feel safe anywhere because of stories of enslavement, genocide, exclusion in every kind of way. And so I just think I want to name the non-neutrality of that history because we can say, yeah, that's in the text. But the implications of the text are never divorced from the history in which that text sits. 
Right. And I'm going to be 100%. I don't know if this is a Jewish thing or just a my family thing. I have a lovely ancestral legacy on both sides of holding grudges on my family. So I'm going to be clear. My brother and I sometimes talk about our shit list in the new heaven and the new earth. Like who we're going to accost for a serious conversation. And Paul is high on my list. <laughs> like, <laughs> because I was just talking, I was just talking to my brother about this. I was like, you know what? I think I think Paul was writing to try and be as inclusive as possible to get as many Gentiles on board. And you've already talked about how the epistles are reading someone else's mail. But even on top of that, like you, like Paul's focus was not, oh no, I might get my people in trouble later with the things mm-hmm. that I'm saying. Like he, I doubt he was being as careful as he could have been. Yes. Uh. Ah, yes, Paul. High on, yeah, high on my shit list. If, if you don't have a shit list for eternity, I suggest you make one today. That's your first <laughs> action item. Congratulations. It may not be Jewish, but it's very Moraf. Like, um, and, well, it's that colonialism. I think we can just say like that, if you've read Andrea Smith, The Pillars of White Supremacy, you'll recognize it. There's this like urge of like, okay, we are the dominant force now we want these things that you have. Like we want these texts, we want these rituals, we want these promises. But in order to do that, we need you, Jews, to go away. And so Mm -hmm. we are going to make you go away. We're going to make you go away through our rhetoric. We're gonna make you go away through genocide. And um, for those of you who somehow managed to stick around, we're going to talk about why you are the worst, like why you don't deserve these texts, mm-hmm. why God hates you, why like, and so that's, I think, what you see. Oh, I remember, I was going to give a travel tip. To your point, if anyone visits Rome post-COVID, go visit the Arch of Titus. You will literally see an empire, an emperor commemorating sacking Jerusalem. Yeah. It's It's there, right? It's like, ooh, I took a picture next to it, like, ooh. (laughs) Yes, and it it is true in that, that whiteness and anti-Semitism, again, the Venn diagram is not always a circle, but white supremacy and anti-Semitism have in common that they create existential, elevated evils out of people groups that need to be eliminated for the sake of a better world, a more pure world or a functional world in a way that aligns with whiteness. And so I think as we look at the roots of the theological roots that make white supremacy and anti-Semitism a closer Venn diagram, I think that's just a part of it. Yeah. Well, and I think um, a couple things is like, I think, the survival, the perseverance of Jews poses a few major issues for Christian empire, especially when Constantine makes it the religion of Rome. And some of those issues are as follows. Number one, it is Jewish people, I'm just going to go ahead and say, Jewish people are a living question mark on the divinity of Jesus. Like it, mm-hmm. like Jewish people are a living uncertainty. Here's this group of people all these prophecies about this messiah were meant for and then this guy came and claimed to be that and the people i would argue most qualified to notice didn't think it was true and Mm -hmm. that question mark provokes such an existential anxiety in like the mind frame of whiteness of like 
oh my, we, we can't handle the question that maybe we're wrong, right? And Jewish people are like an embodiment of maybe you're wrong, <laughs> like yes. in a weird way. And I think um, the second thing I think that the perseverance of Jewish people does that's really just existentially threatening to white supremacy, to Christian empire, is it it throws off the de- it throws off the centeringness of Rome, right? Mm-hmm. Like if Jews are still there, we want to be the like we want to be the center of attention. Like Rome says, we want to be the center of attention. Like we need this to be about us. Like so, why are you still here? We replaced you. Like no one, no one gets a replacement something and then keeps the old one around and still uses it. Like, and I think the third problem it poses in that is. We know that Christian empire, we know that like white supremacy demands one answer, one answer. So the existence of Jewish people and the thought that God might still want something to do with them just undercuts that completely. This idea of like, oh no, maybe God does walk and chew gum and does, and and white supremacy can't handle that. And so, so you have these layers of why I think Jews need to go away like yes yes and i think that part of that is that a lot of christian ideology assumes that christians need to have a universal hold on truth therefore a universal hold on god thus own god in some way and i think this like ownership of the divine poses a big problem in what you're saying yeah which is hilarious because i feel like so let me just say talk about one of my sadnesses in watching some people who follow Jesus decolonize is I think, oh my God, like Judaism could have saved you so much time. Like mm-hmm. that, like that concept is not, is not a thing. Like nope. I was reading in my uh, study Tanakh, like we all know that in the Hebrew scriptures, that there are passages that contradict each other. Like an easy example is Genesis one and Genesis two. And so what some Hebrew scholars have said is it's like that, because, you know, the people who were putting together the Torah had multiple sources. And in true Jewish fashion, they were like, these are both good. We bet they're both divine. Yes. They don't match up. Who cares? Put them both in. <laughs> like, yes. And I feel like, oh, my God, like, what a gift, you know? What yes. a gift Judaism could have given Jesus followers. Like, what yes. if you can just say, wow, these don't fit. And they both have value. Or the idea of, like... I feel like there's this deep idea that like Torah, Torah is like the most, sorry, Torah is the first five books of the Bible, right? Um, Torah is this gift. It like tells Jewish people who they are, tells them how to live, how to be a nation, like all this stuff. And the rabbis say, it doesn't mean crap unless someone's explaining it. Like, you know, I feel like Christians are like, okay, you shall not, you shall not, uh, work until who am i i don't know no. like christians are like you shall not work from sundown on this day to the next day and they're like check no work on sundown and jewish people are like ah when is sundown like <laughs> yes and so it's this deep this deep like wow we revere this text so much we want to live in appropriate relationship with god therefore we must figure out together what we're going to do so the community can be a part of itself like the so the community can live cohesively but eh, like that yes. that halakha that ruling 
like so so for context like sundown is when you can see three stars in the sky but i think any rabbi will tell you eh that eh you know like eh it doesn't have to be like we could have yes. chosen something else and yes. i think there's like such a beautiful interplay there's such a beautiful interplay there. It's like actually because of the deep reverence and deep desire to honor who God is, we must discuss, we must be honest about what we don't understand. And we must make choices that we recognize are a little bit arbitrary and may change. Yes. yes. And I think in that, what you're naming is that dominance cannot afford to be dialogical. That right. white supremacy in and of itself cannot be dialogical in its Christianity because being dialogical gives up power to define a narrative. And whiteness does not exist without a defining narrative that says that we are better. And I think that there are ways that this gets imposed theologically in a lot of ways. And I think the way I would most summarize it, and I and I think there's maybe a trigger warning to be had, but it really is an ideology of convert or die. Oh. And people pull that out of Revelation, where it literally basically says, if you read it from a, non a violent perspective, I read it nonviolently, so it's different. But it's like, People in Christian nationalist spaces or in conservative Christianity will often say, we need to establish Jerusalem as the center so that there is a second coming of Christ in which all Jews will come and either convert or be murdered. Boom. And so I think that that narrative <laughs> plays out in, I think it it predates white supremacy, but finds, again, its wheels in it because the, the narratives are the same. You either assimilate into whiteness or you die. And so I think the strategies and principles are like a like a blueprint for war that effectively work across people groups for the sake of maintaining dominance theologically. Absolutely. And to your point, we can't get into it, but let's be honest that that has been like a historical fact. Like multiple times over thousands of years, Jewish people were told convert or die. Like mm -hmm. literally, I cannot tell you I was in Mexico city and I stumbled into Polanco, which is in the like Jewish section. Mm -hmm. And I started reading about the Jews, and I, and I realized, surprise, Jewish people ran to come to, you know, Turtle Island in this section. That's complicated. Let's own that. But then the Spanish brought the Inquisition with them! Yes. <laughs> They're yes. like, good grief, friends! Like, my lord! Um, and so, yeah, and... Yes. I, I think... So you slid in really well to talking about the problems of Christian Zionism. Uh... Which is that. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, can we talk about how Christian Zionism is literally just another crusade? Like, it's just the crusades all over again. Can you say more about that for people who may not be familiar with Christian Zionism? Because Zionism and Christian Zionism are distinct things that I don't think a lot of people recognize. Sure. Uh, thank you. Good call. And again, I, I might need your help, actually. Because to me, Christian Zionism is basically... Replacement theology. I think we have, before we can talk about Christian theology, we have to, Christian Zionism, we have to talk about replacement theology. Replacement theology shows up extremely early. Thank you, Justin the Martyr. You're on my shit list too. Like, Justin the Martyr. <laughs> like, Justin the Martyr. 165 CE is like, oh, God, basically that idea that all of the Jewish texts, the Jewish promises, the Jewish covenants that you see in the Hebrew Bible are now for the church, like, aka mm -hmm. Gentiles. And the empire specifically in that regard. Well, at that point, Christians were still being persecuted. Oh, 160. Yes, yes, yes. One, I know. It's a hot mess. 
Um, don't get me wrong. By the time you get to uh, John Chrysostom and Augustine, it's riding strong there. Uh-huh. And even Constantine references some of this stuff. Sorry, rabbit hole. Most people, may, may, many people may not know why you worship on Sunday and why the calendar for much of Christianity is different than the Jewish calendar. It is because literally, this is going to be the whitest thing you ever heard. Like Rome was like, we don't like that Passover comes twice in one of our years sometimes. That's messy. Let's clean it up. <laughs> like, so, like, that's literally it. They were like, Ugh, this doesn't work with our schedule. And so they decided at Nicaea <laughs> to like, gosh, they decided at Nicaea that they were going to, you know, extricate from the lunar calendar and map it onto the Roman calendar and also start incorporating Roman holidays like Saturnalia or Ishtar instead of the Jewish ones. Mm -hmm. And the rationale that Constantine gives after Nicaea is that the Jews killed Jesus and we should have nothing to do with those vile people. Like this is Mm -hmm. the emperor of Rome Mm -hmm. after Nicaea saying things that have already been circulating for 200 years. Yes. What the heck, man? Like, which, okay, sorry. So, whitest thing you ever heard, Constantine as Karen. I'd like to speak to a manager of the lunar calendar. Yes. <laughs> Number two, whitest thing I ever heard, while they're on the concept. So, maybe we just need to talk about deicide. So, deicide, deicide is, a re- is probably the oldest anti-Semitic trope in Christianity. Mm-hmm. It is the accusation that the Jews killed Jesus. Now, okay, so... It's very old. It has been justified to, it has been used to justify lots of murder of Jewish people. Um, the whitest thing in the world. Let's be honest, friends. Celebrate Rome this year by saying that Rome killed Jesus. He's killed in a Roman way. Literally, if you read the gospel text, it's like the Sanhedrin tries him and they say, uh-oh, we don't have authority to kill this man. Let's take him over to Rome. And so they like take him over to Rome. And then literally, this is, oh my God, this is white innocence in a nutshell, 101. Pilate, the authority who was renowned for hating Jews and being really violent, looks at this man, says, I think you are innocent, but I'm just going to wash my hands and condemn you to this torturous death anyway. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, oh my God, who do you think killed Jesus? It must have been those Jews. What do you mean? Pilate washed his hands. And I'm like... I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yes, like, since when do we turn to the empire as the primary source for justifying or not justifying violence or narrative creation? But we seem to be really comfortable doing that in Christian spaces if it means blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. But it's also just funny. I mean, like, how many times have you heard that? Like, we have heard that this week. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't that white man's fault he, like, killed those people. Like... Da, 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 da. He didn't know what he was doing. Da, 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 da. I'm not going to say a specific line that's on our mind because I don't want to trigger folks. But you're just like, that's the thing. Like, that's the thing. That white innocence of like, what do you mean? You think you think Pilate was afraid? That doesn't make any sense. It was more like he was like, what's one more dead Jew? Eh. Yes. So, um, so deicide, deicide. So deicide, the Jews killed Jesus. Long thing. Replacement theology, Jews killed Jesus, all of this is ours. 
got if the the Jews still exist as an object lesson and what not to do. Like that mm-hmm. was honestly that was Augustine, that was Tertullian's conclusion. They were like, "Don't mm-hmm. worry, friends. They're just there to remind us how lucky we are that we've been saved." Literally. I think that in as you talk about deicide and replacement ideologies and things of the sort in, in all the places that we've gone in there. It gets really complicated to talk about anti-Semitism and race because, as you said in the beginning, Jews are not a race of people that fit into like the racialized categories that we have. Mm-hmm. But anti-Semitism, like we've said, lays the foundation for pretty much all oppression in the United States under the assumption of exceptionalism and all of those things. This ends up getting animated in U.S. Christianity and U.S. policy that are interconnected in ways that are actually statistically significant. So there were some articles that came out recently. I think it was by the New York Times who had gathered data that showed that Christian, that people who are Christian, who have some kind of connection to QAnon, are more likely to be anti-Semitic. And so the conclusion is essentially that Christian nationalism or radicalized Christianity that many of us have existed in and have our primary ideologies about God formed in paved the road to anti-Semitism and further invisibilizing extermination and erasure of Jews. And I think that if we are to be people who engage with white supremacy in our theology and all the attributes that we talk about, perfectionism, individualism, all of those things, we also have to locate the white supremacy that we've inherited in our theology in a historical context that is not divorced from anti-Semitism. And so as we move toward Easter in a few weeks, it is pretty much the most ripe playing ground for Christian anti-Semitism. So can we talk a little bit about how you see some of the, like, let's bring from the abstract down into like the practical. So even as you talk about your friends on the left who talk about all of the things, particularly the Pharisees, Let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that there are ways that we may not recognize that our justice-oriented communities might think they're saying the right thing on Easter to be liberative, but are actually perpetuating anti-Semitism in a way that limits all of our ability to be free of white supremacy. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful question, and I really appreciate it. And I will just I will just note that um, Passover is starts on Saturday, too. It yes. starts on Shabbos this Saturday. So um, just want to name that, that I also agree that this is the perfect time to talk about it. And then Yom HaShoah, the commemoration of the Holocaust, will follow because, sorry, I just learned this and it's just really been grinding my gears. The reason Yom HaShoah is so close to Passover is because Yom HaShoah commemorates the uprising at the Warsaw Ghetto as well. So it's when Jews, they knew they were going to die. They knew the Nazis were coming for them, but they decided we're going to decide the time of our death. And the Nazis come to liquidate the ghetto on the first night of Passover. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and to quote a mutual friend of ours, like white supremacy knows what it's doing. Like that's yes. not a mistake. Yes. Um, so it does feel like a really ripe time. So let's start with just deicide and maybe the Pharisees. I think, and I, I need to be honest with you. There is vitriol in the text. Like there's vitriol in the text. And I think we need to own that. So if you're listening for a first step, let me just say uh, the Jewish Annotated New Testament is a really, really beautiful resource. 
And again, approach with a Jewish mindset of it's in the text and that's okay. Like you, I believe you Christians, every faith has problematic texts and we have tools to deal with problematic texts. Yes. And so you can just read it and you can see it and say, this is here and I see the ugly fruit it has born. So I'm going to read differently. So what I mean yes. by that is certainly there is sharp condemnation of the Pharisees. There is even more. Um, the Gospel of John, I learned this from the Jewish Annotated New Testament. This is what you learned. The Gospel of John is also often known as the most Jewish and the most anti-Jewish text. One of the ways that anti-Jewishness shows up is when John is writing about someone he doesn't like, he calls them a Jew. But when he's writing about someone he likes, he calls them an Israelite. Now, that actually made, gave me a lot of peace when I learned that because let's go back to my family. We hold grudges. And I was like, I recognize this. Yes. My grandfather would have done this. Like, <laughs> you know, think about it. I have a shit list. Like, that's, <laughs> it's there. And so it gave me a lot of comfort to think like, oh, Maybe the author of John, uh, this is not historical. Don't, don't spread this around to people. This is Elizabeth's opinion. This is Elizabeth's opinion. This is Elizabeth's midrash. This is how I imagine yes. the story playing out. Is that, you know, John had experienced great rejection from his Jewish community, potentially had been expelled from the synagogue, potentially, who knows? People aren't sure. And so he's mad. I think we make a mistake to think that people who wrote scriptures were somehow magical and holy themselves and not just mm -hmm. people. I was like, yes. maybe he was just like a bitter jerk writing yes. it. <laughs> Doesn't that vitriol make sense? You know? So, so yeah. I just think in the posture, in that posture is to say that the scriptures are full of problematic text across the board. Like, I don't know any rabbis who are like, this is a perfect text that has no problems that we need to discuss. It's, it's like so, you would never hear that in a conversation. I think that Christianity, because of anti-Semitism, has to frame itself as perfect and infallible. And infallibility in and of itself generates oppressive ideology by saying that we have to justify every problematic thing, even if that means more death and violence toward other folks, in this case, Jewish peoples. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you're modeling is, okay, we can look at texts that say almost literally like, and then they went to kill Jesus. Yeah, like, or like then they conspired among themselves as to how they could kill him. Like right, or like and you have Satan in your soul. Like yes, like those those exist, and we can we can engage with those texts and say, hey, maybe there's principles about how we engage with new ideas. Maybe there's principles about how communities form themselves against people that they disagree with. Maybe this is how we engage with minority movements. But we don't have to say the Jews killed Jesus, because that point actually doesn't do anything for us except to be anti-Semitic. Can we say, hey, we see in here a human propensity to when we are in our ideas and we think we know something, do something about that that we may not do, and that the authors themselves seem to have a thought about that. Yeah. And we can dialogue about that without being anti-Semitic. Yeah. Well, and I think... Yes, you are 100% correct. And I would even say, like, let's just reorient. And this goes back to the erasure of Jews, right? Like, all of these conversations, and I think this is a common stumbling point for Christians, is, like, the vast majority of them were written for Jews by Jews. Marginalized people for marginalized people. 
So like for any people of color listening, I don't know what your intra-group conversations are like, but let me tell you, when I read the stories of Jesus interacting with folks who are also Jewish, I am not shocked. <laughs> like, like, I'm not, I'm not shocked, but you know, it's like all of a sudden a Gentile comes in and it's like, Hey, I heard you say this about Jews. And I think Jesus would be like, hold up, leave. Like you may not say these things. Like, what are you doing? Like, get out of the room. This is Jewish people's business. You don't need to be in Jewish people's business. Go home. Like, and, and wouldn't speak that way. Like, anyway, that's my opinion also. So I think you need to read, you know, even like in those moments, think about the Pharisees. They're being oppressed by Rome. Like, they're trying to figure out how to make sure the community survives. And I'm going to be honest with you. It kind of doesn't. Jerusalem gets sacked in the 60s, 70s. And then the Bar Kokhba result, like revolt happens and 600,000 Jews are murdered. And the Pharisees are the ones who rally to create, to preserve Judaism for the people. And so, you know, all these things that I think liberal Christians love to say about Jesus, like he was antagonizing Caesar with the way he rode into Jerusalem. And like, he was pretending to be an emperor and he was so political and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, he was putting a big target on their backs. Who among us would would blame someone for being concerned? Yes. And and like again, history bears out the validity of that concern. Now, mm-hmm. Jewish scholars think that the Jewish community actually didn't care that much about Jesus, that he was like one of a lot of what they would consider false messiahs running around. So so I think, you know, but again, both of those we can hold both. We can hold maybe what histo- history suggests. And we can hold this story of like, if you think about it. Have you ever seen a member of your group going out there and drawing the wrong kind of attention? And you're like, you are putting us all in danger. I mean, I don't know. I'm going to legitimately ask you, Brandy. Like, have you had that feeling before? I have. And I think that maybe what comes to mind for me is that as we keep saying, or as you keep saying, but I agree that God can walk and chew gum, that in those stories of, say, like, what Christians celebrate on Palm Sunday, this triumphant entry, which I hate the phrase in and of itself because it's like so, there's so many problems with it. But Jesus shows up and he's doing these like anti-empire symbols. And does that give us a celebratory sense that God is anti-empire as God has been anti-empire since the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures? Like straight up, that's not a new, that's like not a new thing. So I think it's interesting when Christians are like, look, he's anti-empire. And I'm like, okay, well, that's always, like literally that's like not a new thing. And I can see why that would make other Jews deeply fearful of the thing that this like kind of lone wolf is doing. And so I can hold both things and say, yeah, I can celebrate that God is anti-empire and that for those of us that like believe in a resurrection story of Jesus, we can go like, yeah, empire doesn't get to win. And we can go the things that Jesus did and the ways that we interpret what Jesus did like historically are not neutral in their implication. And I think it's why it's so important that these conversations happen in dialogue, because so much of Christian theology is about defining truth ahistorically as universal and unchanging. And when we do that, it disallows us to have conversations in which we can say, hey, don't compare a Pharisee to a white supremacist. Take the concepts that you see and apply those to your own life and worldview right now without 
demonizing an entire people group because we wouldn't feel comfortable doing that in any other context yet we feel very comfortable yes. doing that with jews yes and i think to your point like the other thing i hear from all sides of whatever from all people is people love to shit on torah people love to talk about how they're free from the law how the god of the old testament is violent they love to talk about how the law brings death and and you know before getting into how that's like deeply hurtful it's just a deeply ironic moment for me, number one, because the vast majority of those people have not led halachic life. Like, they, they don't actually know what they're saying. Like, And number two, I just get this thought of, like, it's just a moment of people forgetting that Jews exist. I'm like, mm -hmm. Jewish people are alive, and they revere these texts, and they give us life. And you, I'm assuming that you would not go around saying, oh, the Bhagavad Gita get, brings death. Or like, you wouldn't say we are free from the Tao Te Ching. Like you wouldn't, most people, and I'm assuming most of your listeners would never dream of doing that with any other text, like with any mm -hmm. other holy text. But somehow it's this thought of like, oh, but Jesus gave those to us. And, but we don't really want to use them <laughs> unless it's convenient for us. So they must be garbage to prove how good the new Testament is. Like, do you hear it? Like, it's yes. it's the same. Like, again, white yes. supremacy hasn't changed. Yes. It hasn't had to make and up a new idea. <laughs> yes. And that ideology gets exported to every other religious and like ex existence. And so anti-Semitism, when we when we engage with anti-Semitism and when we pull it out from ourselves, we actually increase our ability to live in pluralistic societies that are interfaith because what we do to Jewish people, we do to every other Yes. Religious group in conservative white evangelical Christianity. And yeah. so I think there's that piece. I also think that it's ironic because what ends up happening is Christians seize the Hebrew scriptures, like try to own them, read them through colonial or colonized eyes, then say that interpretation that we made up brings death. Therefore, we need to discard it when really what we're doing is just we're we're making ourselves look really stupid so I have I have this the study Bible. I think that the ESV version of the Bible is trash. It's written by a bunch of like patriarchal. I've never read it to be honest. I've never read the ESV in my life. You don't you don't need to. It's the English Standard Version. That should tell you enough. But <laughs> what it's written by folks like Wayne Grudem, who started the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So it has all of these already very obvious theological bends. This Bible came out in probably 2007, and I started attending a Christian college in 2008 as I was dual enrolling. And they gave us this Bible as a required Bible to have. It was a study Bible. It's literally in my recycling bin. Didn't want anyone to have their hands on it. Maybe that's sacrilege. I don't know. It's hard to know what you do with. I don't know what to do with that. But I was reading the Hebrew scriptures and I was just like, I wonder what this study Bible says. And it says a lot of those anti-Semitic tropes, like the law brings death, this to, or what it does in a less nefarious way. Because I think that some of us can be like, oh, yeah, the law brings it. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say that. But what I think that many of us are comfortable saying or just haven't unlearned yet is that the Hebrew scriptures don't all point to Jesus. No. And I and I think that that is what that study Bible is just like, and this points to Jesus. And you just need to find a Christological archetype in every story when the Hebrew scriptures are not about Jesus. No. They are not. about the God of Israel. And we get to learn from the stories. We get to interact and engage with the stories, but they are not ours to own and then to colonize into the Christian narrative. And so I think that it's important that we just name that that exists in our Bibles, in our translation, in yeah. our common Christian narratives, and that that is not a neutral thing. 
Great. And so I think to that point, maybe we can just say two really great first steps that people can take. One is if you stumble upon a portion of the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, that make you uncomfortable or confuse you, Google rabbinic commentary. Like, just Google it. Like, Cain and Abel. What do the rabbis say? Or, you know, or or look up Jewish scholarship. Because, again, like, in, in Jewish culture, there is such a robust, like, look at how Jews in scripture argue with God. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they argue with God. Like, they have been discussing these issues, you know, and you can find that. And I think the fact that that's never occurred to so many people is such, it's so iconic of what we're talking about. It's like, oh, like, maybe they're not trustworthy or like, oh, I've just literally never thought of that. So that's number one is just Google ribbon and commentaries. And you're going to find some, a lot of solidarity. Like I love having a complicated passage and seeing a rabbi say, this is the most complicated thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like, yes. this is very confusing. Yes. And I was like, oh, good. You know, um, and oh, crap, I lost the second one. So yeah, anyway, so maybe that's the first one is just rabbinic commentary. Yeah. Well, and then the second one I would say is know how to spot anti-Semitism and ask what the implications of it are. So I think that the January 6th attack on the Capitol actually gives us a lot of really easy data for this, where you literally have, and again, like, this is super triggering shit, but like a person wearing a sweatshirt that says Camp Auschwitz, or someone who has something that's... um, 6MWE, like 6 million wasn't enough. Well, like, Brandy, I learned that that was not at the Capitol insurrection. That was at a Proud Boys meeting two weeks earlier. Keep oh, your no. facts straight. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and that, but that there are all of these ideologies that are on full display that are, as I keep saying, the animating force of white supremacy that says that we need someone to blame. And I think there are specific ways that Jews currently get blamed for Oh, QAnon... The, QAnon is an anti-Semitic blood libel. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. Follow it any follow QAnon any don't follow QAnon threads. <laughs> but if you follow it anywhere, you will always end up at anti-Semitism. And the general sentiment is that elitist Jews, particularly white elitist Jews, are race traitors who are ushering in a this sounds like I'm making shit up and no, I'm no, not. No, 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 no. A multicultural yeah. a multicultural reality that will disenfranchise and dispossess the white race. So let me just pause you there and say, so who's down for the Jews to be in charge if that's what we're up to? (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing, is that white supremacy is so confusing and that it abstracts threats that only matter to white people. Like, in the world where, like, white people aren't the majority shareholders of what is right, good, and neutral. A taco truck on every corner. Yeah. I I think most of us are like, yeah, okay. Please. But there's ways that that, that the, I think what happens is that we, this is not a word, absurd, like, absurditize. Yeah, sure. Judaism. And we do things where we're like, QAnon says that Jews have a space laser that they are using to destroy. And people were like. Yeah, we got to get rid of the Jews because of the space laser. And so I think that white supremacy starts in terms that feel racist as shit, but practical. Like, we want to not have white people being dispossessed. But when you follow the trail deep enough, you have to make people either so invisible or so absurd as to never be taken seriously. And the line that what that does to us is it 
creates a casual dehumanization of Jewish peoples that is, again, a road paved for the casual dehumanization of other people. And if we want to be free from white supremacy in our theology and in our engagement, we have to tackle all forms of dehumanization and anti-Semitism as the road that paves the way for all other race-based oppression, in my opinion, yeah. has to be something that we engage with and learn to notice and name in the ways that it exists in our political specter- yeah. spectrum. And you've named a really old anxiety that exists. So some of the first like segregation type measures against Jews were implemented because there was this anxiety of like, oh no, we need to be able to tell when we look who's who. And so like as early as like five, the 500 CE, Jews are required to wear yellow, like, and mm-hmm. Jews are only allowed to live in certain parts of the city, and they're not allowed to have certain jobs. And like, there's this very strict segregation. I think people think, again, I think people hit, think like Hitler was uh, innovative, and he really just wasn't. <laughs> like, Mm-mm. he doesn't even get that. Um, but to your point, um, yeah, and I think, I so something unique about uh, anti-Semitism, and so maybe now is a good chance to slide into talking about the insurrection. Anti-Semitism functions so well by uh, isolating Jewish people from people who should be mm-hmm. their allies and obviously from whatever. Like some, sometimes people say the Jews are white and I would say white people do not think we are white. So let me be honest and just own like, yes, I am a white functioning Jew and I'm intentionally not saying white passing because that term is for black folks. I am a white functioning Jew. And... Oh, don't worry. A white supremacist is going to kill me when they come for the Jews. <laughs> like, don't worry. My <laughs> whiteness is very defective. <laughs> like, yes. and I know that. It's important. Yes. Anyway, let me not talk about Jewish people business in front of other people. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah, think yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. that you're saying, though, is that intersectionality exists across all types of identity existence and that being white in does not preclude you from experiencing the oppression of Jew, of Jewish people. Right. Um, so, okay, so it functions really well by isolating us because so much, so much of just our Christian ideology is binary. And one of those binaries is oppressor oppress. So the problem with anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism imagines Jews as a super race, as like, we're so capable, we're this tiny minority that is somehow like controlling the weather and we've made it to space with our lasers and like all of these things. And so somehow... Even in, even in a lot of other communities who are oppressed, punching a Jew is still punching up. Like it's still, I think mm-hmm. emotionally people feel like it's still punching an oppressor. And I, and so let me just tell the story. So I'd like to start before January 6th and start to January 5th. The Jericho March. Ugh, yeah. That is replacement theology on full display. You have Gentiles dressing up with sacred objects pulling out the shofar i mean the shofar is only brought out twice a year like yes at the most holy time in the jewish calendar and so to see so anyway let me just say it did not belong at the jericho march i will simply say the shofar should not have been at the jericho march and it shouldn't certainly should not have been there in the hands of a gentile so here are these gentiles And what are they saying? It's called the Jericho March. They're saying, we are the new people of Israel trying to get to the promised land. And we're going to blow down these walls of Jericho and it's Congress. And that same day, you have a newly elected Congresswoman saying, Hitler had one thing, right? Teach your kids. And everyone's like, um, 
so unnecessary. Lots of, it is not like an unusual thing to say that we need to invest in our kids. So, okay, so there it is, right? You've got the replacement theology. You've got the appropriation. You've got the erasure. It's all there. January 6th, there you go. You got them doing whatever the hell they're doing. And, you know, there's a person with Camp Auschwitz. There were some members of, like, the neo-Nazi party there. Mm -hmm. And let me just tell you, let's loop all the way back. Like, I believe that. Like, I don't know how to describe how real that feels. A common refrain to me in this season, honestly, starting in 2017, when those neo-Nazis were shouting blood and soil and Jews will not replace us, yes, has been... I'm alive because Clara's family knew when to leave. Mm-hmm. Is it time to leave? Is it time to leave? So I think, you know, we can't, I'm laughing because let's be honest, space lasers mm-hmm. is pretty funny. Yes. But so, so here's where we get to the isolation part. Watching my friends respond, watching my friends respond to that. I saw things like, obviously, comparing these white Christian nationalists to the Pharisees, which is just inaccurate because if, our situation were mapped onto the, the Gospels. We're Rome. We're Rome. Mm-hmm. We know this. We're Rome. Um, I also saw people say, someone should tell those nationalists that God abandoned that strategy 2,000 years ago. Like, God Ooh. abandoned the nationalistic strategy 2,000 years ago. But the one that hurt me the most, the one that hurt me the most, was when I saw people say things like, oh, well, these white Christian nationalists, are just doing what they see in the Old Testament when God cared so much about purity. Ooh. And, and like, so I'm panicking. But part of why I'm panicking is just like a deep level of gaslighting, right? Of like, so, so here are these people who think they've replaced the Jews, who are proclaiming that the Holocaust didn't go far enough. And here are the people who should be my friends saying, oh, they're just being obedient to the Hebrew scriptures. It's just like a, such a deep form of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and, and the, the irony to me is that if you went up to any of those people, any of those like white insurrectionists, and you asked them what they thought about the Old Testament, you think you're going to get a different kind of answer than that? Like, you know, it's just like, And again, I, how do I, I'm not trying to just shade that, but I'm saying like, I think it's just important to say like, that was the moment where I decided to speak out because I was like, yeah. we're literally going to die. Like, and, and I mean that like quite literally, I was like, the white supremacists are clearly coming for us. And historically when Jews have seemed most assimilated is typically been when they're most vulnerable. Yes. And I was like, and everybody who's my friend you know, is either not going to notice or applaud or, um, and so that, you know, so, so anyway, so I guess like, let's, I guess like if I can tidy that up, I guess what I say, so there you have it, folks. You had, you had such a smorgasbordy there. You had a replacement (laughs) theology. You had, um, and the responses included things like Deicide. This is the same toxic mix of politics and religion that killed Jesus. You have denigration of the Torah, um, which is deeply disrespectful and also attached to a lot of violence and is also a form of gaslighting. Um, and you have like just the 
erasure. Like, I didn't, I saw so few non-Jewish people comment on the on that anti-Semitism. And so I think something that every Christian needs to be really mindful of is like Jewish people are the bottom end of the binary for Christians. So that's just like a really common thing. Like anything a Christian from any background doesn't like becomes a Jewish person in the text. They become the Pharisees. They become the mm-hmm. Israelites. They become that. You know, it becomes the law. It becomes, you know, um, and any good thing becomes, I would argue it's Paul and not Jesus, but, you know. um, So that's a really common, that's a really easy thing to look for in yourself. Like next time you want to criticize another Christian and go for it. Um, (laughs) Next time you want to criticize another Christian, just like, listen, if your go-to is to compare them to something Jewish. I'm going to tell you something that a rabbi told me and and how I think it helps. It can help Christians kind of disentangle from anti-Semitism and white supremacy. Christians have such a tendency to separate themselves, say like, those aren't real Christians. I'm the real Christian. I'm the real remnant, which I think is actually an echo of that anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but also it's very un-Jewish. It's, it, mm-hmm. So there are Jews I am not proud of. I will just say that. But... Um, during Sukkot, there's a ceremonial object called the lulav, and it has four elements. Do you know? Do you know about this? I do anyway, not. Sukkot's in October. It's like a harvest festival. You build booths, you camp out in them. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. But anyway, part of it is you have it's an agricultural festival, so you have this element called the lulav that has four four parts to it, four different types of plants. And what my rabbi said, and I'm sure he was quoting another rabbi, said. The four elements of the of the lulav are like four types of Jews. The most fragrant and beautiful is the one who has Torah study and works. Because Torah study is like equal to so like everything. The the like you know the less good one is like the one who has Torah study but no good works like no tzedakah like is not doing what they're supposed to. The third one has good works but doesn't have Torah study. And the fourth one has neither works nor Torah study. But you need all of them for a kosher lulav. The lulav is incomplete without any of them. Mm. And I think I will never celebrate when a Jew dies. I will never mm. celebrate when a Jew is hurt, even if they're a complete schmuck, even if they're on my shit list. Yeah. And I, I wonder if like part of like reclaiming your theology is it's complicated, right? But mm-hmm. it's like saying no to othering. And saying that I'm here in this family and like the Lulav is not kosher if if one of these is missing. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's really hard. Yeah. But um, yeah. Well, and I think that the historical conclusion that we can draw in that is that when one is harmed, all are at risk of harm. And it has always been historically true that when Jews are marginalized – that all other marginalized people are fair game for the dominant force, the empire, the oppressor. Yes. Um, in this case, specifically, white people who identify as Christian who have fallen into some sort of extremism. And so I think that like our ability to notice and name when power forces or dominant forces are coming for Jewish people is to say, yes, 
it's not kosher until we're all there. And the only way that we know that is if we know who each other are and can see each other. And it sounds so fluffy, but I think that when we, when people who identify as Christian are primed to believe that this like Jesus story erases this like in ideal, more evil, more purity driven narrative of the Jews. What that says is that God is evil and our God is good. And therefore those people who follow that God are evil and therefore we are good. And that dehumanizing narrative is as old as sin as right. but people I, in my communities would say. But I also want to say is like, you don't want that God. No. You don't want that God. You don't want that God who throws people away. Like you don't no. want that God anyway. Like no. And I think I think you're also hearkening to to another step that people can take that I think about a lot, as I've struggled and wrestled with what it means to be a settler guest on Muscogee Creek land in one of the most beautifully rich cities of Black history in the United States. Yeah. I I approach my life here so with such humility, like. Well, you know, I, I'm so humble. Sorry, I just did that. <laughs> but like, you know, I, with such like awareness that I am a guest, with such awareness that my mere presence can ruin the ecosystem. If you saw me, we'll just say it this way. Given the broken, well, no, 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 no. Basically, like I live here knowing that my very presence risks accelerating gentrification in this neighborhood. Like, mm-hmm. like that is true. And and so I live here so wanting to be so careful, try, like taking steps to give my land back, taking steps to understand what how I can do reparations, because I'm not going to wait for the government to do that. And just with this deep sense that I'm a guest and there's a story that has been written in this place, and there's a story that the land has that is even further than all of that. And I just understand my moment as so small. And so I approach my life here with such like reverence and such fundamental decenteredness. Yes. And I think that if I can if I can echo Paul and say be like me, god, good <laughs> grief. But I guess all I'm saying is if, if others have also practiced that kind of posture, um I I think that posture can really serve you when you approach Christianity. Like yes. God has been look if you want to ditch, honestly, if you want to ditch the Bible and embrace your ancestral ways of encountering God, I am here for it. So I, I'm not trying to like, ma- I'm not making a claim on how mm-hmm. you approach God at all. But if you are going to approach it through these scriptures, through this story, I think it helps to approach with that fundamental decenteredness that yes. this. This, there's a story here that is rich and old and still unfolding and and you're invited like you're you're certainly invited and I actually think that part of I do think Jesus challenged me reading the text as a Jew to also decenter ourselves right mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that Jesus does he fundam- he asks us to fundamentally decenter ourselves. Mm-hmm. always constantly and and i mean that on a people level he says jewish people i see your pain and i'm going to invite the romans to be a part of this and i'm going to let them stay roman mm-hmm. and I, can we just agree that that's hard 
Like that's super hard. That's painful. Like we all want white folks to change. Like imagine that your Messiah from your people comes and he says, by the way, I'm going to invite the white folks and I'm not going to make them change. Like I have a, we have a whole, I feel like I have a whole book in me called Jesus, the great disappointment. And like, <laughs> I feel like people don't understand how fundamentally disappointing Jesus is. And, you know, I still like, I still love him, but you know, um, so anyway, so I think that's another, uh, tip for folks is just like what does it look like to read with this kind of like I think that will serve I think that will actually like serve you like serve you in getting to know God like like I think here's an example of something that like really shapes the way I think of things like so you know everybody loves to talk about the Israelites clamoring for a king clamoring for Saul right and everyone's like oh my god those shitty Israelites but what they miss is like Look at this God. This God says, what do you want? That's what you want? Okay, here's what that means. Like, here are the consequences of that. And they say, give it to us anyway! (laughs) And this God comforts the prophet and says, don't worry, Samuel. This isn't about you. It's about me. And I'm going to give them what they want anyway. Like, mm-hmm. that's the God of Israel. Yes. Like, and that's the God of Israel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And I just think like, that, that's like, a God who decenters God's self. Like, God is decentering God's self. Over and over and over again. And I think that the way that I'm approaching that as a Gentile approaching Hebrew scriptures, like even as I teach the scriptures in some ways, I'm like, I am fundamentally a visitor to this text. And if I were a guest to a text, if I were a guest to a people group or to an ideology, how would I act? What would I, who would I go to for advice about what it means to be a guest there? What would I need to know about the people to show up appropriately in their house? If I'm going to tell that story to a group of people that aren't there when I visit, how would I speak about them and that experience in such a way that would honor them? And so for me, one of the things is I've been trying to teach and engage and like enter into conversation with people about the text is I'm just asking like, am I sitting in the guard one? I'm asking, do I sit within the guardrails of the rabbinic traditions? When I look at this text from the Hebrew scriptures, am I operating and asking questions in a way that would honor the rabbinic traditions? Yeah. If I am, okay. If I would I say this to a Jewish person? Great. Yep. If I would, cool. Can I notice all of the ways that this text oh. challenges my assumptions and worldview? How am I bringing dominance into the text? And if I can answer all of those questions well, then I move forward. And if I can't, I don't. I won't do it. I agree. And I think to that point, I think like reading it as a story is really helpful and is such a part of what you're doing on this podcast. Like I was just asked to share a reflection on a section of numbers where the people complain against God. And let me just tell you, when the Torah scrolls were wrote down, written down, originally there's no chapters. There's no chapters. So, so, you know, it's easy to like stumble upon this little text and be like, oh, look at them. They're whining again. And then you read in the chapter before Miriam dies, Aaron dies, 
the king of Edom refuses to let them go across. And so they have to take this long way. And then the king of Edom attacks them and then someone else attacks them. And then they're back at the Red Sea. And that's when they complain. And I was like, wouldn't you complain? (laughs) So I think if there's anyone in charge of the lectionary listening, (laughs) revise that shit, please. Because like some of it, you're like, why? One, include Shifrin. Pua, come on, what are you doing? Please. Um, but also, like, don't don't start that passage from Bamid Bar there. Like, that's dumb. Like, what are you doing? So that's to your point. Is like, read the story. And, like, re- read what the story means. Like, even if you're going to Vaikra, if you're going to Leviticus, like, look at what that means. Like, you have the priest. The priest is expected going in on check on mold in people's houses. The priest is supposed to go check on your discharge. Like, that I would love to see a white pastor attempt those things nowadays. (laughs) There's like humiliating tasks. And then, like, their most honored task is hey, you're going to go visit God. We're going to tie some bells around your ankle in case you die. Like, (laughs) can I tell you? That's the thing. People are like, oh my God, the Jews think they're the chosen people, chosen people. I'm like, I'm sorry. If you look at uh, Jewish history, do you want to be chosen? Does this look fun? Does this look fun to you? Like, I think it's in like Fiddler on the Roof. Debbie's like, why don't you like choose someone else for a while, God? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to be that? <laughs> Christians are like, we want chosenness, and I'm like, but do you? Like, do you not? Did you not read? I was like, did you not even read the text that you've colonized long enough to realize that the task that we have given here to this blessed. Yeah. To be a blessing situation is a really freaking hard task with a lot of responsibility that I don't think most of us could even process what that would look like. And so I think even as we close, I the one thing that I think has been helpful for me is just to ask, how am I reading the text, any of the text, the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian texts, with a compassionate response? How do I have compassion in the text for what I'm reading first before I critique it? Because I think so much of Christianity is critiquing things until they no longer matter or critiquing things until we find some abstracted truth. And if I enter with compassion and I ask, how might I have compassion for each person who is in the text? How do I have compassion for the Pharisees? How do I have compassion for Jesus? How do I have compassion for Judas? How do I have compassion for the zealots? And if I can start with compassion... I think Christians can avoid a lot of the anti-Semitic landmines that find their kind of full fruition in erasure, genocide, Christian nationalism, conflation of politics and religion and ethnic groups and race and all of those things. Yeah. And so I think that'd be my my invitation is for people to engage with compassion and with yeah. the posture of a guest knowing that the text is not ours God cannot be owned. God can walk and chew gum. And if that's the case, then the ways that we enter in matter. Yeah. And I think that's important. I agree. And I think I will say for folks, pardon me, I'm going to, I'm going to specifically talk to people of color for a moment. You can read as if you were a Jew, a little. Read the story of a people who has suffered a lot. <laughs> And is trying to figure mm-hmm. out what it means to be relation in relationship with a God as they suffer a lot. <laughs> I, 
I, I think that's and I think that um, for me falls in the tradition of the aunties who understand something about God in the midst of suffering that me and my $200,000 worth of education don't Absolutely. understand. And so I think that invitation feels very real. So I, I just want to say thank you for your time um, and, and for this dialogue, because I think that there is a I don't think there is a specific vulnerability that happens when we have. I don't even I don't even know how to call it. It's because it's not exactly interfaith. It's not actually exactly interethnic. It's, it, it's like it's this multi space. Yeah, it's this multi, when we enter into this kind of multi space that has a history of religious and racial oppression attached to it. Dialogue is not a yeah. neutral thing. The cost for you as a Jew having a conversation with me as a Gentile and as a Gentile Christian has all kinds of historical implications. And so I just want to name that and that I don't take that lightly. And I feel honored to be in the midst of dialogue that I think is highly valued in Jewish traditions and not so much in Christian spaces when things are more about arguing and being right. Um, I think and we, argue, I like being right. Let me just own it. That's a problem with Jews. We're too honest. I'm like, Catholics have it right. Do the hagiography. Augustine converted and then he was perfect. Meanwhile, we're like, look at our favorite king. He's a murderer and a rapist. And we love him. <laughs> you know, you're like, just buff yeah. him up. Airbrush them. Just a little, guys. Um, sorry. Humor is yeah. one of my coping mechanisms. Because what I really want to say to you yeah. is thank you. I, uh, I don't know if this is a Jewish concept. I think it's just a me concept. I just have such deep honor. And what I mean by that is, like, reverent resonant gratitude um i truly believe that this is the kind of work that'll save our lives um mm. so i just thank you for making space for that and i think like just i want you to let i in the in the idea of guesthood i want to let you close the space as you will but some really quick steps people can take like in this week whenever this goes live if it's not after easter is one just say it out loud. Rome killed Jesus. Say it. No, number, no, number two, remember Passover. Um, and three, mm-hmm. remember Yom HaShoah. Uh, mm, it wasn't long yes. ago. Yes. Yeah. No. Uh, no so, th- so thank you. I really mean thank you. Yeah. Well, is there anything you want to plug? Anywhere people can find you or anything like that? I recommend you follow... Um, Ashagar Araro, Black Jewish Magic. I recommend that you follow Debbie Lichtman at Roots Metals. If you want to learn uh, Jewish history, join. I don't know. I don't know if. I don't know if Black Jewish Magic has a Patreon. But Roots Metals does, and I am a part of it, and you should be too. Uh, <laughs> and then my last two plugs will be the Jewish Annotated New Testament. If you're a person mm-hmm. who regularly reads scripture, just get it. Like, I almost want to say I'll get it for you, and I may if like ten of you take me up on that. But if like fifty <laughs> take me up on that, maybe not. Um, so those, I think those are my big plugs. Is I think Google. I'm plugging Google. Google rabbinic commentary, yeah. Jewish annotated New Testament, Roots Metals, Black Jewish Magic. Amazing. And here I am. If you want to find me at more F Pritchard, the end. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Hey, this is Brandy, and well, obviously you've been hearing me talk for like an hour and a half, but Elizabeth had a couple of things that she wanted to add slash correct. And so here is that clip of those notes for post-conversation, because you can't always get everything right in every conversation, and that is part of the journey. Hi friends, Elizabeth here. In the spirit of learning together, I would like to return and address a few things that came up in this podcast. One thing I'd like to address is that while I said that people who are ethnically Jewish and no longer practice Judaism are still Jewish, I must also say that people who convert to Judaism, even if they are not ethnically Jewish before that moment, they immediately become fully and irrevocably Jewish the moment they convert, and their descendants are also Jewish. If you are a Jew who has come to us through conversion, either yourself or a recent relative, we are so lucky to have you and you are fully one of us. I should have also mentioned when talking about the Holocaust that there were two groups of people who were singled out for extermination. One is the Jewish people. The other group that was designated for extermination were the Romani people. While I cannot speak to the Romani experience, I suggest that we all learn about it and name it. And one way to do that is by visiting the Instagram handle at Romani Uprising to learn more about the Romani experience in the Holocaust. Lastly, towards the end of this podcast, I say that I think to myself that I'm alive because Clara's family knew when to run. This is not true. What is true is that I'm alive today because Clara's family was lucky. There are many others in our community who are not as lucky, and it is unhelpful to suggest that anyone who dies in an ethnic cleansing or a genocide has any blame whatsoever in their death. That is not true. So instead, let me say correctly, I'm alive today because Clara was lucky. And I hope to be lucky in the same way. Thank you for learning with me. And we'll talk soon. Thank you all for joining for this specific episode of Reclaiming My Theology. If you have questions, please shoot them our way. We are learning. I am learning. This is a conversation that I felt more nervous about than other ones because it does fall outside of what I know. And so I just wanted to name that I am a learner alongside all of you, that I'm wrestling with ideas and figuring things out. And I love to have your input. To that end, soon we're going to have a Discord up for patrons to be able to have more active conversations and build community in the midst of that. So thank you to patrons. If you want to join us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash brandynico. Just $5 a month gets you a little bit of extra content, though I'm super behind on that, but we're trying to get the tech figured out on our bonus feed that has some great episodes already lined up and ready for you all. And if you want to help out other ways, please take 60 seconds to rate, review, and subscribe because it helps others to find the podcast. But y'all, thank you again so much. It is an honor to get to do this. And as we learn together, we learn to do better together.